This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. Like you, most of us are on holiday now, but we thought you might like to hear some of our best programmes from last year. This month has Waitangi Day in it, so in the programme, Bill Southworth looks at the fatal impact between Maori and early sealers and whalers in Otago. Judy Southworth investigates pre-European Maori on the Taere Plain. Sarah Gallagher reports on the settlement of the Otago Peninsula, and we discover that some Pacific Prime Ministers went to the Otago Medical School. The first regular contact between Otago Māori and the early sealers and whalers did not end well. Bill Southworth has been looking at this fatal connection, which saw many Māori either die from European diseases or become slaves to alcohol, permanently trapped into a degraded lifestyle. When the first tentative contacts were made by European sealers with the Otago Māori in the 1800s, there were estimated to be thousands of them living in the province with hundreds settled round the bays and inlets of Otago Harbour. In addition, there were probably two to three hundred living in Karatani Waikoaiti and another hundred at Tairi Mouth. It has been estimated that there was possibly a total of up to 5,000 living in the Otago and Southland area. The sealing period did not last long as an intensive slaughter of the animals so reduced the herds that within a few years the trade had died out. In his book, The History of Otago, Dr A. H. McClintock writes, The whole of the southern coastline of the South Island, from the western fjords to the Otago beaches, was the resort of sealers, colonial, English and American, who, without any guiding principle except indiscriminate killing and freed from the restraining influence of the law, surrendered to the lust of slaughter and the lure of wealth. Every inlet was the scene of frenzied butchery, made more terrible by the passivity of the victims. The large American sealing vessel, the Favourite, reached Sydney in 1806 with a cargo of 60,000 seal skins said to have been procured on the east coast of New Zealand. The whaling industry came next. It was attracted by the large number of whales which came along the Otago coast in the breeding season, which lasted from March through October. This was a more substantial industry which required the establishment of shore stations with permanent buildings and accommodation, where the whales could be cut up and their blubber boiled for oil in large rendering pots. Shore stations were established in Otakau by the Weller brothers and at Waikowiti by Johnny Jones in the early 1830s. The presence of these raiding villages and the Maori who were attracted to them led to a tragedy. By the time the Europeans first undertook a census in the 1840s, the Maori population of Otago, which had numbered in the thousands, had dropped to just over 400 survivors. What had happened to cause such a massive decline in their population? Although there had been the odd fatal clash with sealers and whalers, and some tribal warfare between Naitahu and the invading North Island tribe Ngāti Taua, these did not account for the catastrophic decline. Unfortunately, the real reason was the earlier contact with hardy but often dissolute crews from whaling ships. They brought with them alcohol and a demand for prostitution. But worst of all, 
new diseases for which the Māori had no immunity. Initially, Māori fell victim to influenza and a small outbreak of smallpox. But the real disaster came in 1835, when there was a serious outbreak of measles. It was reported that Māori Rotakau plunged into the sea in an attempt to cool their fevers. Today, just south of Tokomariru River mouth, there's a memorial to members of a summer camp there who were totally wiped out. The death toll from the disease is estimated to be twice as bad as the Black Death in England in the 14th century, which reduced the English population by almost half. On a hill called Ohinitu, overlooking Otago Harbour, the Naitahu chief Tuawaiki was later to reminisce to settlers. This was one of our largest settlements, and it was beyond even the reach of Te Rauparaha. We lived secure and feared no enemy. But one year when I was a youth and a ship came from Sydney, and she brought the measles amongst us. It was winter as it is now. In a few months, most of the inhabitants sickened and died. Whole families on this spot disappeared and left no one to represent them. My people lie all around us. And now you can tell Colonel Wakefield why we cannot part with this portion of our land. The Weller whaling establishment at Otakau was the largest in the country. In 1835, it had 11 boats, staffed with a crew of 85, most of whom were European. It also built dozens of buildings, and it had the look of a thriving village. More than 100 whales were killed, some within the harbour. The boom didn't last, as the whales were beginning to abandon their ancient sanctuaries. Overkilling at Johnny Jones's station at Moraki also saw the whales avoiding their breeding grounds, and it too was in a state of financial collapse by 1845. Within a decade, the Weller village was abandoned, leaving behind deserted buildings fast falling into decay. Two houses had been transformed into public houses, where Māori were said to spend their money as soon as they were paid for gardening and other work. The prices for the liquor, usually brandy, which was said to be vile, were sold at highly exorbitant prices. The whalers had a reputation for depravity and drunkenness. Although this may have been overdone, thanks to the stories of narrow-minded Wowser missionaries who visited from time to time, it is true some were dissipated and threw away their wages on highly priced booze, which was distributed at company stalls in lieu of wages. One ship discharged 120 tonnes of liquor at Waikawaiti when there were only 40 Europeans there. Māori developed a thirst for European liquor, becoming addicted to it and started hanging around the whaling stations, spending the wages they were paid for for gardening and other tasks for more and more alcohol. Visitors came to notice that many Māori now dressed in rags and looked depressed and dilapidated, a forlorn remnant of the flourishing tribes that used to populate the area. In their book called Early Dunedin, Māori Gordall and George Griffiths observed that The ravages of disease and the demoralisation of traditional ways of life through contact with the riffraff of the whaling stations severely affected Otago Māori. To Hawaiki, a local chief told George Clark, sub-protector of Aborigine, when he arrived to supervise the purchase of land in 1844, We are but a poor remnant now, but even in my time we were a large and powerful tribe. 
On another occasion, Chief Tuawaiki said, We had a worse enemy, even than Te Rauparaha, and that was the visit of the Pākehā with his drink and his disease. You think us very corrupted, but the very scum of Port Jackson shipped as whalers or landed as sealers on this coast. What had played out was a familiar and depressing scene, typical of many colonisations. The fatal impact caused by an indifference to the needs of an indigenous race and the clash of incompatible civilizations. This is Bill Southworth reporting. Although they were never there in large numbers, pre-European Māori used the Taieri Plain as a valuable food source because what was then a wetland area was rich in eels, whitebait and other river life. This report from Judy Southworth. For most of us, our view of the Taieri Plains is formed by the patchwork of fields and the buildings we see as we fly in to land at Mamona Airport. Those who farm the plains know that efforts have been made to avoid the heavy flooding there in the 1900s. So why is this area so prone to flooding? Māori, who were the first settlers of Otago, found the Taieri a very different area. They called it Taiari. Māori have lived in the vicinity of present-day Dunedin for centuries, and some occupation sites date back to approximately 1000 AD. The wider Dunedin area was of singular importance to the Waitaha, Katimamo and Kaitahu people as a sort of Mahika Kai and Mahika Kaimoana, a place of settlement, a burial place, and ultimately as a cultural landscape that embodied the ancestral, spiritual and religious traditions of all the generations prior to European settlement. Kaitahu were a nomadic people who travelled extensively on land and sea. They travelled from Otakao villages up the Taga Harbour and into bays and inlets within the Dunedin area known as Otipoti. This area was a landing spot and a point from which the Otakao-based Māori would hunt in the surrounding bush. Māori would drag their waka into estuaries and walk by foot to food-gathering areas such as the Taieri. The Taieri was a rich food source with bird life, eels and so forth. Māori were able to follow particular tracks over the peninsula and around the Lawyer's Head area and into the Taieri Plain. According to traditions, the bush was so thick in the Dunedin area that when some European ventured in, they never returned. The lakes and the wetland areas that are now known as Te Nohoaka o Tukiawao, Sinclair Wetlands, was teeming with kai, including whitebait, eels, lamprey and bird life. As the Taieri Plains were developed and lands privatised, the Kaitahu Whanau were confined more and more to their lands reserved from the 1844 sale of the Otakao block and reliance on a lake, Tatawai, a small lake of 124 acres to the northeast of Lake Waipori. Lake Tatawai was drained and this impacted severely on the environment, and naturally, Māori shifted from the area over time as they were unable to gather their mahika kai. During the Naitahu Claims Settlement Act 1998 negotiations, they obtained ownership of the property known as Sinclair Wetlands, 314 hectares of former farmland that had been allowed to rewater. This purchase was to help settle the long-running issue of the loss of Lake Tatawai. 
run as two separate trusts, the first an area of 56.5 hectares for the beneficiaries of those with rights to the former Lake Tatawai, and the balance an area of 259 hectares for mana whenua who have mahinga kai rights and interests in the Taieri wetlands area. We appreciate the information obtained from Okaha, a Dunedin consultancy service for the five runanga. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. Today, the Otago Peninsula is not clad with native bush, but it was quite different in the 19th century when the first European settlers began to carve out their farms. This report from Sarah Gallagher. It has been said that Otago Peninsula is windy nine days out of ten. Described as almost an island, the peninsula was formed by the great Dunedin volcano between 16 and 11 million years ago. Within it lies a band of limestone that is even older, stretching from Te Ahikaroro, Seal Point, across the harbour to Dowling Bay. Tradition tells us the Atua Tu Te Rakifanoa discovered this wrecked celestial waka of Auraki, or the South Island, and carved out places for people to live, including Maopoko, Otago Peninsula. The harbour was formed by the Tanifa Matamata, who turned to stone by the sun and became Pukimakamaka, Saddle Hill. Otako is home to Waitaha, Rapuwai, Katihawia and Katimamui. In the early 19th century, around 2,000 people were recorded as living on the peninsula, but this declined abruptly after the first European visit in 1838, which brought disease. Despite huge land losses, Kaitahu have been continuously resident at Otako since the 17th century. The peninsula was once heavily forested with large tōtara, rimu, beach and matai, and was populated by four species of moa. Early paintings by O'Brien, Chevalier and Welch show the original dense covering of bush. The forested land was largely cleared for farms by settlers in the late 1800s. The following accounts of two residents reveal details of the landscape at the time. Walter Riddle hailed from Dunfries in Scotland and emigrated to Dunedin with his wife Wilhelmina in 1862. They lived at Sandymount from 1864 to 1901. Walter was a joiner by trade and came to Dunedin with a reference from the Duke of Buccleuch one of Charles II's illegitimate offspring. When the riddles arrived, the bush was thick and difficult to navigate. Entries from his diary provide an economical but arresting description of life. March 28, 1865. Paid Carter £3 for bringing us our baggage and seven fells to our new house, which we called Ivy Bank. It took us ten days to carry our things through the bush a mile from the end of the road. Riddle spent a great deal of his time working the land, clearing bush and cutting timber for days, weeks, months on end. His diary sees him variously working on his own property or working on the properties of other settlers. Labour was bartered for skills and debts were repaid through clearing bush and sawing timber, which he used for fencing, building houses, cow buyers, pig pens, butter churns, and occasionally coffins. He often reported clearing or sawing all day for weeks at a time for someone else and then grubbing ground and planting potatoes at night on his own land, sometimes by candlelight. April 15, 1865. 
have been busy sawing timber all week and excavating for an addition to our house which consists of one room, 14 foot by 12 foot, built of fern tree. Bought from Robert Bagri one tonne of potatoes for five pounds and took four days to carry them through the bush. October 11th. Finished Cochrane Weir's house this day. I have wrought at it without intermission and the buyer since 10 August. Drew plans for a church and subscribed £5 towards building it. Given the amount of time he laboured clearing bush and the many hours spent sawing and building, it is notable Riddle did not record his impressions of the landscape, the flora and fauna, the trees, even for their qualities and material. Clearing was variously described as a dour job, slow and tedious and awful. A roving reporter in 1870 who was en route to visit McDonald's lime kilns verifies the nature of the bush. The country here is covered with heavy timber, comprising totara and all the pines, and some of the trees are very large. The undergrowth is very dense, and supplejack being particularly plentiful, rendering progress through the bush at times very tedious. In a moment reminiscent of Dr Seuss's story of the Lorax, Riddle notes the felling of the last of the large trees on his land, 33 yards long and four and a half feet through. In contrast to Riddle's diary, Jane Dick's memoir compiled by Hardwick Knight joyously recalls memories of the landscape from when she was a child. Jane was born in 1867 and from the age of five spent time on the peninsula with her grandparents, Mr and Mrs Robert Dick, who had also emigrated in 1862. The family home faced onto Whitcliffe Bay, looking out to the ocean and over the flat land of Orkia and its tremendous pyramids of stone. It was almost impossible to describe the scenery, it being so grand. The bush was filled with birds and the grey robins were quite tame. I used to take some crumbs with me and stroll along a track hanging with ferns and all sorts of greenery and try to be friends with the robins. They were grey with a big black eye. Tuis and bellbirds and parakeets were plentiful. The bush was glorious and had a lovely smell and there were lots of flowers such as clematis, fuchsia, kakabeek and loya, a very sweet smelling flower. It was a great delight to spend time in the bush with the birds, ferns and all else. There was a connection between the Riddles and the Dick family. A large outcrop of limestone ran through Riddle's land and in 1865 he mentions helping a lime burner, James MacDonald, test lime on his land. Jane Dick's uncle William, who was a stonemason, built a kiln on Riddle's land. This is the kiln you can see today on the Sandy Mount Road. Kilns were built near to quarries and often included tramways to move the stone from quarry to kiln and kiln to a loading or storage area. Dick also designed and built a huge kiln for MacDonald further down the slope on land he owned. Further still down were the Glenmore Lime Kilns run by William Robertson and his sons. As well as being a useful building material, limestone was quarried for burning to create quicklime, which could be used in both the agricultural and roading and construction industries. The lime kilns, now dormant for over 90 years, 
a testament to one of the early European industries on the peninsula. The Sandy Mount Lime Kiln Complex is a registered Category 1 historic place, and you can find this story on our Heritage List online at heritage.org.nz. This is Sarah Gallagher reporting for Heritage Matters. There's been a great deal of focus on the Pacific recently, and Bill Southworth has found an earlier link between Dunedin and Pacific leaders. Former Fijian Prime Minister Ratu Sakamasesimara and former Cook Islands Prime Minister Sir Tom Davis were both former students of the Otago Medical School. In Ratu Mara's case, the word Ratu roughly translates as chief, it was always assumed he had a leadership role to play in a South Pacific homeland. When Fiji was still a British colony, he was born into a high chiefly family in the Lao Islands. With the twilight of empire fast approaching, the British were planning for a smooth transition to independence. London believed Fiji would need a competent leader, and the tall, athletic and intelligent young aristocrat seemed like a good prospect. Thus, from an early age, Ratu Mara was groomed for higher things. In the 1940s, however, Ratu Mara decided he wanted to be a doctor and enrolled at the Otago Medical School. Of this, he would later say, My time at the Otago Medical School I always thought of as the best years of my life. I played a lot of sport, I made a lot of friends, and I was able to get through my exams without much difficulty. I eventually played for Otago in cricket and rugby. In athletics, I got a New Zealand university's record for the high jump and won the drinking blue in Dunedin. I created a record of 1.8 seconds, which stood for some time. But before he completed his medical degree, he received what he described as a bolt out of the blue, a letter from his great-uncle Ratu Salala Sukuna. It summons him home to begin training as a future leader of Fiji. His first post back in Fiji was as a district officer in the Nauvoo district, near Pacific Harbour, which is about an hour's drive west of the Fiji capital, Suva. He also doubled as a local magistrate. Surprisingly, I had no sense here in the 50s that the colonial period had to end. We thought we were not going to become independent. We were part of the Queen's Regnum. We were happy. Why should we change things? I belonged to the school that believed we should not be parted from the United Kingdom, and there were countries like the Isle of Man and the Channel Islands who were on their own, and yet they were part of the UK. Our first reaction was that we should adopt that status. We said, why should we? We ceded our islands to the British. As far as we're concerned, we've given authority. How can we bring it back? This is not chiefly... Ratu Mara's alliance party won the first election and, winning subsequent elections, he ruled the country for the next 15 years. There were tensions. The Indian population increased until it was slightly larger than that of the Fijians, who came to believe, rightly or wrongly, that they were about to be swamped in what they regarded as their country. When the alliance was defeated by Dr Timothy Bavandra's Labour Party in 1987, the new government was only allowed to rule for a month. Soldiers, led by Lieutenant Colonel Sitavini Rambuka, entered Parliament and arrested the new government at gunpoint. The mutineers then played on Fijian fears of Indian domination, although the new Labour Prime Minister and half his cabinet were native Fijians. Radumara was not apparently linked to the mutineers, but he stayed silent during the coup, 
not using his considerable mana to publicly chastise the mutineers. Fiji would subsequently be bedeviled by other coups and was once even described as cuckoo land. Rodumara was appointed president in 1992, from which perch he was able to observe his beloved country deteriorate, both politically and economically. He died in 2004. He said before he died, Looking back 50 years to my days at Otago, time and again I've regretted I didn't complete medicine. The career of Dr. Saddam Davis, the future Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, was a little different. He was educated at the secondary school in New Zealand, and in 1945, he became the first Cook Islander to qualify as a medical doctor at Otago University. But getting there in the first place from what was then a New Zealand-administered semi-colonial territory was not easy. Tom Davis saw a continuation of colonial attitudes when on graduation he applied for a job in the Cook Islands Health Service. They turned him down, but he was nothing if not persistent. The fifth time he applied, he was appointed. Once he arrived in the Cooks, his problems continued. In 1948, he was promoted to Chief Medical Officer, but was not allowed to live in the living quarters that had been provided for Europeans filling that post. He was told to live at home instead, a decision he put down to what he calls sheer racism. I had to suffer a fair bit of that. I was asked by the resident commissioner not to worry so much about sick people. I was spending too much money. Eventually, it made me think we really needed to be free of this. Our people had much more intelligence than they were being credited with. They were being trampled on. His next stop was at the Harvard School of Public Health, where he taught and researched the medical aspects of living in space, as well as in heat and cold. He was to spend 20 years in the United States, and in that time worked at Cape Canaveral for NASA, as part of the Apollo moon landing program. The Cook Islands resident commissioner had told him when he left that he would never get a job back there again. In other words, he would never again work as a doctor in the country of his birth. He was told, in fact, that the New Zealand Prime Minister, Walter Nash, did not like him. Then came a breakthrough. In 1965, he heard about the choice of self-government back home and the election of Albert Henry's Cook Islands Party. Three years after independence, he headed back to the Cooks. Davis formed the Democratic Party in 1972 and, after losing several elections, finally ascended to the Prime Ministership in 1978 and was knighted three years later. After fighting against the paternalism of the New Zealand government for a long period, the Cooks finally got control over its economy and effectively gained control of its foreign affairs policy. Sir Tom retired from politics and died in 2007. It is something of an eye-opener to see how New Zealand was regarded for much of this period. Sir Tom again. I've always loved New Zealand, but any country with a colony treats it in the way they treated us. Look back in Polynesian history, the Tongans, the Samoans, the Tahitians, they've all been climbed over. Look back to the Romans, they did it and New Zealand didn't act any differently from the Romans. It's the nature of colonial power, and it's no surprise that during those years Cook Islanders lost a sense of their worth. It's not all corrected yet, but 90% of the people really believe in themselves, they have self-esteem, they do things their own way. I am grateful for much of this material to Ian Johnson and Malcolm Powells and their book, New Flags Flying, Pacific Leadership. This is Bill Southworth for Heritage Matters. 
The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30 a.m. and replayed on the following Sunday at 7 p.m. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1 p.m. and Sunday at 7 p.m. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Check out visitheritage.co.nz This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.